Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Wendy Cypher and welcome to the Anxiety Hour. This is a podcast where we invite well-known Australians to speak about their own private experiences with mental health. Usher Gunsberg is a TV host and radio personality, best known for The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Australian Idol, and honestly, so many other things it would probably be quicker to name the Australian shows he isn't on. But off screen, Usher's been dealing with mental illness since he was a child. A few years ago, he experienced a psychotic episode that came to reorder his whole life. Across this talk, we discuss depression, suicide, and substance abuse. Please be conscious if you have been affected by any of these topics in your own life. Let's start at the beginning. We may as well jump straight in because I have a fair few questions for you. Why don't we just start with you telling us a little bit about your experience with anxiety? My experience with anxiety, it definitely started, I I remember the first amount of kind of really horrible ruminating anxiety that happened when I was was about five, I think. It was the first time I had the experience that there was this horrible feeling that made my body feel pain and the thoughts were more frightening than anything that I could actually see in front of me. But because it was in my body, I couldn't escape it. And I was about, yeah, I was about five when that happened. I lived with that for a really, really long time. When you're a five-year-old, how do you even contextualize what's happening to you? I don't know. I have no idea. No idea. I was, you know, I just knew that there was something, it was so scary. I wanted to hide under my bed, but under my bed wasn't far enough. Yeah. So it didn't matter that I was hiding under my bed because the, the, the pain and the fear was within me and there was nowhere to hide. When did you kind of start understanding what that actually was and giving it a name? Oh, not till way later. Not till, God, 20s, you know, I really didn't know. You know, and that's, you know, if you don't understand what's going on, if you don't understand that your body's being hijacked by, you know, neural triggers and receptors that have been part of the operating system since we were on the savannah to try and keep us safe from rustling bushes and shadows overhead. Um, if you don't understand that, you know, that's a part of your body just going, ah, sorry, I know you got this thinking thing that you like to do, but we are going to take control and we are going to get us ready to fight, to flight, to fart, to whatever, you know, what it is the other Fs are. Um, you know, if you don't understand that, you don't understand what's going on. It's all, it's all very, very real and frightening because it's, it's within you and you can't escape it. I mean, talking about that feeling of being unable to escape something that is innately part of you, yeah. a few years ago you did have a pretty massive episode and a breakdown. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit about what happened? Um, so I experienced, uh, started 2014, um, I had been off meds for about nine months under supervision. I've, I've, at this point I've never gone off meds without talking to my doctor first, um, which I highly recommend. <laughs> um, I, um, I was living in Los Angeles. Um, at the time, I was kind of technically unemployed. Um, there was a whole bunch of stresses that was happening. Uh, I, I didn't uh, – I was doing okay 
on on meds and I was doing so well that my doctors and I, my doctor and I at the time decided, yeah, let's just see what life's like without it. But every day had been getting worse and worse and I didn't want to admit it. Um, and I just kept kind of gritting my teeth and running th- and just kind of try to run every day to try and make it go away. But um, the running only lasted maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half sometimes. And I would just kind of get back to shouting at the walls a bit. Um, I was having like four or five hours of fitful sleep a night. Like, so I'd wake up in the morning and it looked like it was laundry day because I'd stripped the bed and tossed around that much. Um, and then, yeah, just one day, just my brain kind of, I was undergoing a lot of stress and I didn't know if I was going to have another year of work and uh, this relationship I was in wasn't, you know, didn't, wasn't happening. And, um, my dad got sick and, um, everything just kind of popped and on that day, my brain suddenly decided that um, the world was going to end that day. And the way it was going to end was that the full and catastrophic, cataclysmic climate change predictions were all going to happen. All the projections were going to happen, 100% going to happen, and they were going to happen today. So you've had this very extreme thought. How did you proceed from there? I tried to run it off, so I ran down. I was living in Venice Beach, and I ran down to Santa Monica to try and shake it off. And as I ran, I was kind of glitching in and out of like seeing something and then it wasn't there but then it was there and i'm seeing um you know the water level 15 meters higher than it was i'm i'm, I'm seeing these giant you know s- storm surge waves washing all the houses away and i'm seeing the Baywatch tower lifeguard towers you know kind of floating now because we're underwater now it was so so terrifying and all i wanted to do was run up and warn people there's all this danger coming we need to be we need to run we need to we need to find safety we need to get to higher ground it's interesting because I'm sure a lot of people would relate to being on the other side of that interaction. Having someone who's clearly really unwell come up to you and say something that they believe is true, but you just perceive as being paranoid ravings. Um, thankfully, I didn't do that <laughs> because that's a, you know, that's a that's a proper proper hundred percent sign that something's really amiss when you want to warn people, you know. Um, but yeah, I was really I was really lucky that I knew that something was wrong. And so what I did was I, uh, I ran very, very quickly, um, back to, um, I ran very quickly back to my house and, um, you know, I called my mentor and I said, Hey man, this is what's happening. He goes, ah, you need to go to see a psychologist as fast as possible. Um, fast as possible was going to be the next Monday. So I kind of gripped my teeth for a couple of days. How did you get through that for a couple of days, though, knowing that your own sense of reality had kind of fragmented like that? Well, I'd been very, very lucky in that at the time I had been sober for about coming up on four years. So in sobriety, I had learned um, and earlier I'd been diagnosed with PTSD in my 20s. But and I'd learned a thing called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy at the time which is where you kind of question your automatic thoughts. And definitely in sobriety, I'd learned to question those automatic thoughts. And so the, 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 the muscle of questioning my thinking had been a part of my life for a while at that point. And it was everything that I could do. It was like the heaviest lift that I could lift every five minutes or so, or less, to try and push those thoughts and go okay this is a really distorted version of what's actually happening because no one else is panicking 
yeah, it was a tough couple of days. It was a really tough couple of days, and uh, it, it got it got way worse, and it got really worse. Um, it's physical agony. I don't think a lot of people understand that as well as that. Um, you actually feel pain. You actually feel physical pain, and um, I ended up like trying to swat the pain away, and you know, barking at it, trying to make it go away, and it was it was all it was really really horrible. And then and that's when a really really simple and clear way of making it all go away just popped into my head and it was like the best idea that i'd ever had in my life it was like oh i'm really hot and really thirsty i'll go to the fridge and i'll have a beautiful cold glass of water and it's going to be amazing it's just the best and you know that's how that's how suicide showed up suicide showed up as the kindest most wonderful best most beautiful thing I could ever do for myself you know it was so much so different to not ever thought that it might feel like because you know like you like many people listening I've lost friends to suicide and I never understood it never understood it and then in that moment I was like oh that's why that person did it because it was the best idea that ever had and at that moment I was like oh if this is coming to me as a, a really good idea then I really can't do it because this is part of this is my brain also distorting things. This is my brain so sick that's telling me that this is the best idea ever. And um, so I just got on the phone. I just reached out. I just started calling people. And I must have called, I don't know, I must have called people for 14 straight hours. I eventually started taking some medication uh, once I got to my doctor. and then, But that medication takes ages to work, takes a couple of weeks to kick in. The, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but I needed something far more intense. But I was in a foreign country at the time. I was I was traveling and I didn't want to show up to an emergency room and get committed. So I kind of gripped my teeth, um, even though it was really hard. Um, but, you know, in the, in the year, months and years following, I tried all different kinds of medication to, to try and make it all, you know, calm down. And at one point I was on two different kinds of antipsychotics and a SSRI and, and something else. And, um, yeah, eventually all the meds kind of started to work and yeah, I started to, I started to get better. And in the middle of all that, I met the woman who's now my wife and, um, you know, I just really wanted to, you know, even though I was convinced that the world was ending every single day for about a year and a half, here's this woman that told me that, look, if it does, I'll be there with you. And that's kind of what I, I fought to find and try and fight for and got there. And we even changed hypothesis in the middle of where my psychiatrist uh, changed his hypothesis to what might be going on. And um, once we shifted hypothesis and, and started treating OCD, um, well, that's when things started to get better. Things started to get you know, immeasurably, immeasurably better um, to the point where by the end of December 2017, so some nearly four years after it all started happening, um, I was at a point where between my psychiatrist and my psychologist, I, I run a two, um, two captainship. Um, we decided that I might try life without meds. Why did you want to go off the meds after having obviously a lot of success? Um, look, for me, it's, you know, it was a case of uh, like anything, there's benefits and there's side effects, right? I mean, you might have a, a sore shoulder right that you heard in a touch football accident you know you slipped once playing touch and you busted your shoulder you could take ibuprofen every day for the rest of your life and the pain wouldn't be there but that ibuprofen would rush your stomach away all right so 
you could take ibuprofen for a little while and then learn to use your shoulder properly through physio and do the work. And then you don't have to take that drug anymore and now your shoulder works. You still got to be careful. You can't use it like you used to. You can't go rock climbing or whatever, but you don't have to take the drug every day. In a similar way, there's benefits and side effects to, you know, the medications I was on. And one of those was uh, weight gain and the other one was the sexual side effects. But also, you know, I was in, I was working on breakfast radio at the time and it did, it's kind of, did slow me down a little bit that I felt it slowed me down a little bit. Um, That was minimal. That really was really minimal. It was more the weight gain and the, and the kind of the feeling that, you know, like if you get, if you've ever been in a, in a, in a stereo or, or been around a car stereo where the, the high range speakers aren't working or that you just turn the treble all the way down, like, yeah, you can kind of hear the music. Yeah, you can pick the song where it doesn't have that sparkle. Like you kind of want to sing along to your favorite Beyonce song, but you can't hear the top end. So it's not really quite as real and present. And for me, I'd, at this point, I'd, you know, been on meds for about 10 years by this point. Uh, except for the point in the middle where I got off. And um, I was just kind of feeling a little like a bit disconnected from everything. And I wanted to try and just see what I'd be like and just try to engage with the world at full volume, which was very, very, very difficult for a little while. And I was touching and go for a couple of months um, of having to maybe go back on. Um, but you know, through using a bunch of, you know, fairly robust management strategies that I, I need to do every day and having the incredible love and support of my, not only my wife and my family, but also my work, um, I've managed to, what are we now? About nine months in and I'm still all right at this point. I still, I still talk to my psychiatrist every month. I still check in and go, how are we going? We're going all right. Another month, another month. All right. See you in a month. 
live your life every day and the way you, I mean, you must see things differently. Look, I do. And at the time, the, the knowing that your brain can simply reinterpret the input, the visual, auditory, sensory input and make it mean whatever it wants it to mean is pretty frightening. We have the ability to control that day to day. Someone might cut us off in traffic. We can go, ah, you bastard. Or someone might cut us off in traffic and we go, I hope that person's okay. Or someone might cut us off in traffic and we think, maybe they're rushing to get to the hospital to see their mother who's dying. It's up to us to decide what that is. All right, We have that power as a human with a healthy brain. We can do that. But for me, when I was sick, I didn't have the power to do that. Every single stimulus, every input would tie back to this cataclysmic fear. No matter what, everything around the room, a piece of paper, a flower, I'm looking around my house now, a camera, a picture frame, whatever, would tie back to this horror and set off this physical agony in my body. Um, and that's pretty scary when that happens. But now, you know, I, I actively, very actively take, um, you know, there's a big difference between not taking meds and not needing to take meds. And if I, to keep me not needing to take meds, there's meds, there are things that I need to do. And I need to prioritize sleep. I need to make sure that I eat right. I need to make sure that I exercise right. I need to make sure that I have uh, a life that I live with deliberate purpose around doing my very best to try and connect with my family and do work that, you know, approach my work with uh, a love and passion to do it um, and um, stay close with my doctors. You mentioned before that you kind of first became aware of this stuff when you were five, which is incredibly young. How do you feel that having those experiences, I mean, for easily the majority of your life, has actually formed who you are now as an adult in terms of your personality? Well, what happened was that um, knowing this thing was around me, it was a lot like, I don't know, like a, like a wedge-tailed eagle constantly circling, you know, at any point could come down. But there was a thing that made it all go away, made all the scary stuff go away, and that was... Honestly, that was being on stage because for me, it was a lack of control that was ultimately the thing that was the frightening thing. But when am I more in control than when I'm on stage? Um, and so I just started chasing that because it felt okay when I was up there. I felt in control. I felt good. And yeah, it absolutely catered to my ego. There's a whole other story. Um, but um, I started getting paid to, you know, I started, you know, chasing. And then eventually when I got on stage and playing in bands and then when I got on radio, um, I started getting paid for my coping mechanism and I started getting really good at it. <laughs> um, I do, you know, I do my work for a very different reason now, but you know, it, it was the thing that drove me to pursue my career relentlessly because it was the only thing that I did that made all the stuff in my head stop. So you've never really had anxiety that's been tied to like being in public or performing or being no, kind of so vulnerable to people. No, not at all. Like when I, I did a job in America where um, I, I think I'm the first Australian. I'm the first Australian. I don't know if I'm still the only Australian to have hosted live network primetime TV on CBS. It's a big network over there. It was 10 million people live coast to coast every night. It was the calmest, most serene, most perfect moment I could think of. That's you know, the the one of the most peaceful times of my life that I can remember. It's, you know, some people would be in a lotus position in the woods 
that was me staring down the barrel of camera saying hi welcome to the show it's great if the most peaceful time for you is a time that involves so many other people how do you then find that feeling in your own life independently well i've had to learn obviously to you know find that feeling elsewhere because it's it's unhealthy to only be able to get that access to serenity when you're on you know a multi-billion dollar television production uh which do not come around often uh so um i you know i find that i try and find that serenity more and more i, I particularly you know i now like i said you know, there's things i do every day and i i journal every day i think it's really important it's scientifically proven to, if you write down, you know, 10 things you're grateful for, it's a proven mood shifter. So I write down 20. <laughs> I try to write down 20 things every day. I try to write my fears down, get them out of my head. Um, I do some form of, you know, exercise and I try to get some form of at least either cardio and resistance or just cardio every day or resistance. I'd, resistance training has been really good. There's something about the hormones that it releases when you do big compound movements that I find really stimulates the release of things that uh, make my mood more stable. If you're interested in how people manage points of crisis, you should check out Extremes, another Vice podcast hosted by Vice.com editor Julian Morgans. He meets people who have experienced incredible events, like being the lone survivor of a plane crash. There were accelerating motors, and then there's another even bigger, gigantic drop, and then the people were screaming. And we looked at each other, and he stretched out, he grabbed for my hand, I grabbed his. And then everything went black. Obviously doing this podcast and writing about mental health in general, I speak to a lot of people about their experiences. And something that I find really interesting is that even though we're having this great kind of public moment where it comes to speaking about mental health, medication is still a topic that people really struggle to be open about. Yeah. And I'm interested, you obviously have been open about your whole experience. Are you specifically conscious to be transparent about your experience with medication too? Yeah, absolutely. And in the in the book, I, I really go into a great amount of detail, actually, as far as dosages and, you know, there's a whole bunch of exposure therapy stuff that I went through and, and worked hard on and, um, you know, all different kinds of things because it's important to talk about what treatment looks like so that when the treatment's prescribed to you, you don't freak out. You know, it's like, oh, I've heard about this, you know, oh, I've heard a version of this. Okay, all right. Or, okay, so, you know, there's going to be meds and, I mean, at the time, when I when it was really bad, I didn't care what the drugs did to me. I just wanted it to all stop. I'll never forget my uh, one of my psychiatrists in Los Angeles. He goes, "Listen, man, I could make all the noise stop, but you'd gain you'd gain twenty five kilos." Um. So we we were constantly on a dosage that was just trying to like keep the weight gain. Weight gain was still happening, but we were keeping it on the lower side of. I was I was gaining about a kilo a week, but it can get way worse. Um. So, yeah, I mean, medication at the time, I was just like, I couldn't get that stuff down my throat fast enough because it was just so much better than dealing with the active and passive suicidal ideation 20 times a day. Um, and that couldn't work, you know. It was just awful. Um, and speaking of which, I had enormous support from my work. 
I had enormous support from uh, the television and the production company that I was working for at the time. Um, and they did so much to, to, you know, make it okay for me because they knew, they knew that everything was fine when I got to work and everything was all right because I was there with a purpose and it was good. Um, and they really, really helped me uh, to just by being there and allowing me to, oh, yes, okay, we know you got this. I found that if I showed people that I was managing it, everyone was fine. It was when I, you know, kind of was being a bit weird and didn't talk about it. You know, like if you know someone who's a born diabetic and they just start nicking Krispy Kremes, you're like, that will kill you. And it makes me uncomfortable watching you behave like that. You know, if you if there's someone that you know that has been diagnosed, but they're not doing anything about it, it makes you uncomfortable. But if they've been diagnosed, you go, yeah, this is what I've got, but this is what I do. I'm managing it. Anyway, back to work. It's fine. Everyone's fine with it. That's what, in my experience, at least, that's been my experience. As far as medication, though, there's no way that I would be able to sit here today and not take meds had I not been on meds for so long. Because what it allowed, I believe what it allowed me to do is it allowed my brain to heal to a point where new neural pathways were now starting to be able to form again. And I was able to challenge the delusion and I was able to challenge, challenge the paranoia. It's still with me today, you know, even talking to you about it right now, it's still there. But it used to be a billboard in front of my face that I couldn't see anything past. Right now, it's kind of like a post-it note sitting on my desk. But it's kind of always in my field of view and probably will be for the rest of my life. But if I keep doing the gratitude stuff and I keep connected with everything else, I can constantly now, I'm healthy, healthy enough to be able to see and accept that, oh, no, there's everything else in my life as well as this thing. At the time, that was all that existed. But I hadn't, I hadn't been able to get to that point where my brain was able to, you know, make those concepts feel real without medication. So I'm bloody lucky that someone invented that stuff. <laughs> I really am. I think about that a lot too. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's so, it's so amazing that, you know, because back in the day I was like, here you go, here's some sedation. And that's the end of the story. Like that was it. That's all I did to people. Uh, you know, and, you know, that's no life for anyone. It's no life for anyone. So we're really lucky that constantly people are constantly trying to figure out ways to not only, you know, make these meds, but also deal with the side effects of these meds and trying to find that balance between benefits versus side effects. I mean, that's always going to be it. You said something really interesting before when you were mentioning having your having suicidal thoughts of your own, that you had this moment of clarity when you kind of understood how other yeah. people who you'd lost felt. In that sense, but also more broadly, how has mental health been a way to connect with other people? Well, I knew that like, sobriety is a big part of my story, right? Uh, and of course, you know, alcohol is a very, very conveniently and socially acceptable and very available, very commonly used drug for any variety of sort of mild mental health issues. And no one seems to blink. Oh, I've had a shit of a day. I'm so stressed. Have a beer. Thanks. Great. No one cares. Oh, my God. Can't stop thinking about this thing. Give us the wines. It's wine time. There's even memes about it, you know. No one cares. For me, the amount that I needed in order to feel anywhere near normal was just becoming completely unsustainable. So, you know, sobriety has been a big part of my, my story. And it was in sobriety that I learned the power of hearing another person tell their story because here I am thinking I'm the super special snowflake and no one knows what it's like to be me. No one's got my experience. No one knows how bad it is. Then I sit and I hear this guy put his hand up and share his story. I was like, oh, my God. What, were you watching me the whole time? Because you copied everything that I did. 
but you're now married and you've got a kid and you've got a family and everything seems to be good and you went from unemployment, you've now got a career. All right, so you've got an idea that I don't have because all my best ideas have landed me here. But you seem to know something I don't. All right, I'm like, okay, so there is hope. I can get better. I just have to figure out what it is because someone else knows how to get this done that I don't. All right. And the same thing happened with my mental health. You know, when I heard another person share their story and I heard another person share their experience, it was profoundly helpful to me because I didn't feel so alone. I didn't feel, I, and I saw that this person was now feel, doing a lot better. And I, I thought, okay, right. So there is a way to feel better. There is a way to, there is a pathway to not feeling this bad every day. Is it going to look like never taking meds again? Don't know, but it's going to look like not having what's happening to me every morning happen. Okay. What do I need to do? So hopefully by putting my hand up and, and sharing, and I go real deep on this. I don't really leave anything to chance. Everything's out there. I'm, you know, basically saying all of it. Um, I'm doing so because I want it to become hopefully more normal for people to hear these kind of conversations and therefore more normal for people to have these kind of conversations. So that when you hear a kind of conversation, it's not like, oh, my God, this person just told me that these thoughts are running through their heads. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I've heard people talk about that before. Oh, I hear your GP is a good place to start. And then, you know, so that's why. The experience of having a breakdown is something that I think a lot of people have as like a a number one mental health fear. So I'm wondering when you go through that and you – come through it and you get better how does that change your relationship with your anxiety then when you've kind of got through like the biggest boogeyman in the closet um i think it's like it still feels frightening it still feels awful do i want it to happen again no like do little do i get little whiffs of it like like someone down the road is having a barbecue you can kind of kind of smell it and your stomach reacts but you don't know where the barbecue is you know yeah every day i still have that but it's just remembering that even when when my brain was trying to convince me that this is now a permanent state i kind of always remember that i sometimes would run with mantras now i ride my bike with mantras now i can't run anymore I ride my bicycle with mantras and one of those mantras I remember is no mental state is a permanent state. It's a version of this too shall pass, right? No mental state is a permanent state. So this feeling of utter doom and calamity, it's like, okay, I'm experiencing this feeling and right now, as far as my brain's telling me, there is no other possibility available to me. But I have to remember that no mental state is a permanent state. So right now I cannot see, I cannot see, but I just have to believe that Indeed, the sun is circling around the other side of the earth and it will rise. It will rise in the east. Right now, I can't see it, nor do I believe it even exists. But I just have to know and remember that this isn't permanent and it won't last. What are you afraid of now? Um, There's not many things I'm really afraid of now. Like, I make mistakes every day. I make massive mistakes every day. You know, I'm still trying to learn to live a life of, you know, being a sober, unmedicated person. You know, that's tough um, because I didn't really learn how to adult very well. And so I'm, you know, still trying to learn every day and I make mistakes and I unintentionally hurt people and and I, I try to do my best to clean it up uh, as I go along. 
Um, so I don't really know what I'm, I think I'm afraid of what most people are afraid of. Unreasonable people. <laughs> I'm afraid of, uh, I think I'm like most people, I'm afraid of not being seen. Whether that be here I am trying to tell a story, like you and I are trying to tell a story. That's a pretty serious story. There's some funny aspects in there, but it's a serious story and it's important to have this conversation, but some people might not take it that way and some people might sensationalize it and that will kind of dilute a bit or a lot what it is I'm trying to do. So I don't think I'm really afraid of that. I'm just kind of be annoyed. I get annoyed when it happens. <laughs> How do you feel about your book coming out then and seeing what people do with I'm all this shit information? Scared. I'm shit scared, but it's there is no growth in any part of your life if you don't push yourself to, you know, no growth happens inside the comfort zone. Growth only happens outside the comfort zone. And it's a, it's a very, very open book, very open book. A lot to take in about your friendly neighbourhood rose counter. So, um, uh, but hopefully, you know, I'm just trying to, one in four people in Australia lives with complex mental illness. That's a lot. We don't talk about it. Come on, man. But there I was on your telly every night. Going with it, dealing with it, living with it. Have you found that, you know, in the past few years as you've become increasingly vocal about this stuff, you've become one of those touch points that people approach and try and kind of speak to and share experiences with? I think anyone that's, you know, I've spoken to other people that have written similar books and they've let me know. They give me the heads up. It's like, yeah, look, people are going to disclose. People are going to disclose to you when you least expect it. And they're going to explode, ex- disclose some harrowing stuff that you might not be ready to take on. And uh, for me, it's just making sure that between me and, you know, my family and, you know, the people I work with and my management that we all have a really clear and clear strategy. Because it might be the first time someone's uh, reached out for help, all right? So I, you know, have quite a number of strategies as far as, you know, I'm not a psychologist, nor am I a psychiatrist, nor am I any kind of doctor, nor do I claim to know anything. I just listen to what works for me and I talk about what worked for me. But it all starts with your doctor and it all starts with taking that control, taking control in your life over something that feels uncontrollable, taking control and making a decision that you want to feel better. And that starts with talking to your doctor. That starts with, it's, you know, if people want to tell me stuff, First thing I said was like, wow, I'm really sorry you went through that. I hope you're getting help. If you're not getting help, here's a place to start, you know, and that's it because I, I don't offer any kind of counselling, nor can I. Have you started to think about, even if you're not offering counselling, you're still absorbing a lot of emotional energy. How how do you manage that just on a personal level? Yeah, actually, I was, I was talking to my wife about it yesterday. Um, someone... someone wrote some stuff in, a, in, a, in an email to me and um, oh, I was just in tears reading it, you know. Um, and like number one, that's new for me because I never used to cry. <laughs> so dealing with emotion is a new thing for me. I've only been able to cry for since I came off meds actually. I've only been able to cry for about nine months. So that's nice. But it's also harrowing. You know, but that's the price of being human. What was the first thing you cried over after nine years of not being able to cry? The first thing I cried over was um, during the Hugh Jackman film, The Greatest Showman, in the song This Is Me. 
I was crying because as someone who played music my whole life, I used to always get goosebumps in the good bits of songs. And I hadn't got goosebumps in the good bits of a song for a long, 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 long time. So I started to get goosebumps in the middle of this song. And because I was getting goosebumps and I was starting to feel music again, I was so happy I started crying. And then I turned to Audrey, my wife, and she's feeling all this this, this moisture coming out of my eyeballs. <laughs> I just started crying that I was, I was, I was crying over this, this incredible song. I mean, after nine years of not having that ability, have you found, I mean, it must be like a pretty unique new joy to have. Yeah, it's actually way longer than that. I don't think I cried since I was about 16. Um, there was one time. So one time uh, in my life. Oh, it's, it's wild. It happens nearly every day now, which is great. It's great. It means that that part of my body, those those systems that, because what's for me, I'm only, you know, I'm just, you know, sprouting stuff. But, you know, what what's for me is that tears and weeping is an energy release, all right? If you don't release that, then it's this unresolved energetic situation that then just whirs around in your head. For, for me, at least, weeping and tears are a processing mechanism that allows an emotional energy to leave your body, okay? And if now I've got this ability to do that, more than I ever have. It's, it's really quite nice. Thanks for listening to The Anxiety Hour. If you need someone to talk to, mental health support is available 24 hours a day through Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 and at lifeline.org.au. This episode of The Anxiety Hour was hosted by me, Wendy Seifert, produced by Laura Appelt, with editing, mixing and mastering by Jeff O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts and post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. Special thanks to the whole Vice podcast family. Remember to check out our other shows, Extremes and Violent Times, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on The Anxiety Hour, we're chatting to Vice's very own Charlotte DeBock. Charlotte is best known as the host of Fashion Week International and the producer behind Viceland's States of Undress. We'll discuss imposter syndrome, work as a salvation, and what happens when your dreams come true but they don't make you happy. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.